I may not have been able to buy my new car or buy a new house because of the debt that I still have to pay down. Even to this day, I'm still not out of the debt window yet. But um, I also know that I go into work every day. I still love what I do. I love the people that I work with. And I really love taking care of some of those sick patients. And, And I wouldn't be where I'm at without having made that decision to complete those two years of residency. This is Taylor Stuber. And this is Sean Smithgall. We are both clinical pharmacists and faculty members at Auburn University Harrison School of Pharmacy, and we are your hosts for the Postgraduate Pharmacist. We focus on all topics related to postgraduate training and preparation for prospective candidates. From current events and news to staples in the preparation process, We bring you the listener regular content, so don't forget to like or subscribe to our channel to get updates on new episodes. This episode today is about financial considerations for the postgraduate pharmacist. Our guest today is Dr. Des Linquist. She is a specialist in internal medicine and clinical pharmacist at Duke University Hospital in Durham, North Carolina, and she maintains board certification as a pharmacotherapy specialist. Des, welcome to the Postgraduate Pharmacist. Thanks, guys, for having me. I never, ever in my entire life thought I would be cool enough to ever be asked to speak on a podcast. Well, you absolutely are. You're as cool as we are (laughs) now. (laughs) So before we get into our topic, uh, I want to bring up this project that you started, Des. I really like this, this RX Palette. Uh, you can find it on Instagram at RX Palette and in the description to today's episode below. But these are just, these are amazing. I, I personally love the cirrhosis one. I teach cirrhosis at, at Auburn. So now that I've seen this, I'm like, this is absolutely going into my material for the students next fall. Yeah. And I, and I was looking at it uh, before we recorded this podcast today and it, it looks like chemo man kind of finally grew up. So, <laughs> so Des, where did, where did that idea come from? Oh yeah. So chemo man is one of my favorites. <laughs> that was a little old school there from a long time ago, but yeah, it all kind of started right around the time I got to Duke. I started there in about 2018 and I've always really done drawings kind of here and there throughout undergrad and pharmacy school and really just for fun really just kind of as a way to break up some of the stress and stuff that, you know, that postgraduates go through. Um, And as I really got into my professional career, definitely more into the teaching and precepting, um, it wasn't really something that I did that most learners would kind of relate to or understand. But I really started to put into a focus on pathophysiology and kind of how it relates to pharmacotherapy that we use. You know, I definitely use it every day on my internal medicine service. And when I would teach students and residents, I wanted to be able to show them, like physically show them the why behind the what, uh, as one of my past preceptors would always say. And so the page really came out of a need to find new ways to teach learners about some of the core topics, but to do it in a new way, especially using social media, which I think is kind of the new norm now, especially with the pandemic and all that. But it really just came out of a way to find new opportunities and new ways that visual learners like myself could really kind of relate to some of the harder topics of pharmacotherapy and pathophysiology. So are these hand, you talked about drawing these, are these hand drawn or do you use like some sort of computer program and how long does it take you to make one? So I invested at first, um, I always just drew everything by hand and I also draw on the whiteboards all throughout the hospital and those are all by hand, obviously. But for some of these drawings on line that you guys see on the Instagram page, it started uh, with an iPad Pro and I use a couple of different drawing programs. So most of the time it's really just me and an Apple pen kind of sketching these out. I do take requests. So if you guys have anyone listening that has an idea, 
that they really want to see drawn out, please just DM me on the Instagram page and we'll make it happen. It usually takes me about, I'd probably say three to four hours of physical drawing, coloring, shading, et cetera. And then I actually do spend about an hour to just kind of researching the topic in general, mainly because I don't know everything about everything as a generalist specialist on internal medicine. So if I'm not familiar with it, it obviously takes me a little bit more time to research because I don't want any information to be inaccurate, especially if you put it out into the Twitterverse. So they'll, they'll let you know real quickly if it's not right. But um, I'm really hoping that one day we can figure out how to get these all printed. I've had a couple of requests for like mini posters so that people can have like a giant nephron or a giant liver in their office. But it doesn't take too long, I would say. Well, Des, I'm going to definitely have to take you up on, on getting one of those nephrons because I draw it on my whiteboard <laughs> every rotation and, and it would just be easier for it to already be there. So I'm going to hit, going to definitely take you up on that offer once you start printing Absolutely. You'll be the first. <laughs> yeah. Great. You, you don't want to see me draw a nephron. It's terrible. I, I think I still, yeah, I still have one on my whiteboard right now. Uh, all right. So, so on to finances, I want to address the subject that usually comes up first when we talk about finances. With median student loan debt upon graduation now, I think it's exceeding 170000 How did loan debt factor into your decision to pursue a residency and where to pursue a residency? It's definitely uh, something that people need to think about and talk about more often. I, I find that when I was going through school, even undergrad, nobody really talks about finances to an 18-year-old. So it's really unfortunate. Even a 20-year-old, when they get into pharmacy school, it's just not something that's brought up a lot. But they, they always just seem to be a kind of a touchy subject in our pharmacy world. But to kind of be 100% honest with you, my plan when I was heading into my fourth year of pharmacy school, I was just going to be community pharmacist at a big chain that I had been working at since undergrad, make a lot more money than I currently was making, which was nothing, uh, and really just start living the good life. But when I entered my hospital on my first clinical rotation, which just so happened to be an internal medicine rotation, my entire mindset ended up switching. I really saw what a clinical pharmacist could do both on the inpatient side and for our patients and really decided that that was kind of the moment that I wanted to pursue residency. When I look back at it, I didn't know what a resident would earn. I didn't know anything about the differences in major incomes. I just assumed pharmacists all made a lot more money than I had been making, so I didn't really think about it. And so I'm really glad that we're just kind of taking it and discussing it with these guys today. In terms of figuring out really how to finance all of this stuff, I definitely think it came into consideration when I started adding up application costs and then traveling for interviews. As you know, that's not Luckily, it's not something that is a big concern this year, but definitely in years to come when we're out of this pandemic, flying and traveling to interviews is definitely going to be a cost. So it's really going to come down to each of your individual financial circumstances. Ultimately, my decision came down to what's going to make me happy professionally in the long term. And so in the big scheme of things, I was really making deciding to make two years of financial sacrifices for a long term game of happiness professionally. And I, I would imagine a lot of you guys would make the same decision, but I may not have been able to buy my new car or buy a new house because of the debt that I still have to pay down. Even to this day, I'm still not out of the debt window yet. But um, I also know that I go into work every day. I still love what I do. I love the people that I work with. And I really love taking care of some of those sick patients. And, and I wouldn't be where I'm at without having made that decision to complete those two years of residency. Yeah, and just to echo that, I that's definitely something that you know I kind of thought about whenever I was deciding to pursue a residency. It was what's ultimately going to make me happy in the long run. And investing in your future. And so for me, that was to pursue a residency. And even though it cost two years of making less and having to adjust finances, I think it was, you know, ultimately worth it. So I'm glad somebody else agrees with me. 
So with student loans, should you pay them during postgraduate training? What options are available to students who transition to postgraduate training who are unable to pay the standard payment? And, and lastly, should you refinance your loans? Yeah, I get asked about this quite a lot, actually. I'll start with your second question first regarding kind of the options for repayment. Uh, I would like to clarify all of these statements. I am not a financial planner. I am purely a clinical pharmacist who has a lot of student loans, who has done a lot of reading and research into this. So I would at first say everybody talk to your real financial planner about these options in more detail, but just so that you're kind of aware and know kind of what questions to ask, we can talk about it. There's several things that you can do. Really, I'll speak to my journey. So I graduated in 2014. I think I had about 180000 in debt from just two years of undergrad and then four years of pharmacy school. You're automatically, as soon as you get out, given a six-month grace period after graduation from when you're expected to begin paying loans back. So I think my first payment actually didn't start happening until January of 2015, which would have been January of my uh, first year of residency. And if I had entered a standard 10-year repayment at that point, I think it would have cost me about $2,300 a month. And my yearly stipend in Knoxville was about $40,000 as a PGY-1. So as a resident, that's not many people can make that feasible, considering that's probably about your entire stipend. So you have a couple of options, and the one option is to defer, meaning that your loans are basically put on hold because of a financial hardship, but your interest is still going to accumulate, and you're not, and you're, but you're not going to be making any of those payments. You can refinance and consolidate all of those loans into a lower interest rate loan. This becomes controversial, and some of the things we'll talk about in a little bit. But if your plan is to eventually pay off these loans by yourself without any other kind of assistance programs and you want to do it relatively sooner in like a 10 or 15 years, that may be an option for you just to have a lower interest rate so you're not ending up paying on all of that kind of as you go forward. Another option that I think a lot of people have looked into is the income-based repayment. It's This is where they kind of max out the amount that you pay based on your income from your previous tax year. So Essentially, it's going to cover most of your interest that's accumulating yearly, but you're not really touching principal um, unless you pay above and beyond kind of what you're at at that point. This usually, depending on which plan you're in, I think takes between 20 and 25 years of repayment. Another option that kind of ties into the income-based repayment is the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, which is something that I've been working towards for since 2015. And ultimately, the end goal of that public service loan forgiveness program is that after 10 years of working at a nonprofit, which if you're looking at an academic medical center or a community hospital, most of the time those are going to be considered nonprofits. If you're a part of that program, you make the 120 payments or 10 years of payments and the remaining sum is forgiven, and which is actually tax free. So you don't have a big tax bomb at the end of it, much unlike what some of the other programs do with whatever's forgiven, you actually do have to pay a penalty and tax on it. So all of that being said, we could really just host another episode just on PSLF. I think there's a lot of nuances <laughs> that go into it. It's not necessarily something that every single person's going to have the same circumstances. So I don't want you to think, oh, well, I'm just going to do this and move on. There's a lot of sacrifices that you have to make. It does change your employment a little bit. So you can't work at a for-profit company or a for-profit hospital. But ultimately, you have to do really what's feasible for you. I ended up deciding to enter the PSLF. I was switched to an income-based repayment which uh, when they took into account my 2000, uh, when did I graduate? 2013 income, I was in fourth year of pharmacy school. I had nothing, right? I was essentially, I was like net negative, I think. So they probably should have been giving me money from a payment standpoint, but uh, <laughs> it ended up being like $50 a month since I didn't have that true income. And I paid that $50 a month. That was reasonable. That was about 10 less coffees per day. 
for one week or so at the hospital based on my residency funding. But even then to this day, I'm still part of this program. I think my last payment date right now is supposed to be January of 2025. And actually the pandemic's kind of put that on hold, which is a whole nother situation that we can talk about on another podcast episode. But um, you've got lots of options. I would say there's not going to be one way that's perfect for everybody. Obviously more about me. I, I was not married. I don't have children. So really my finances was just taking care of me and making sure I didn't have to decide between food and laundry, uh, which I've still done a few times, but I would definitely say everybody's going to be a little bit different in how they approach that. Just like for students and those that are seeking out residency to feel that there are options out there that are going to be available to them. So if they're worried about those $2,300 payments, there's certainly lots of options to help avoid that potentially if they're not going to be making as much and making enough to, to make those payments. So I like that you brought that up. And really, if you're considering working in, an, in a not-for-profit going forward, I think PSLF is definitely a good consideration. And if you're going to pursue that and that's your ultimate goal, I think it's good to kind of get ahead of the game there and and kind of do your research. During residency, like you were saying, some of those payment, those lower payment amounts can count towards PSLF and ultimately will increase the amount that you're able to be forgiven. So, so a lot of good points there. Yeah. One, I mean, one of the things that I think you just have to kind of be okay with that I think is hard for a lot of people is that you're going to be in debt. So I know some people just are like panicking when they realize I have almost a mortgage worth of loans on me. And you just kind of have to, especially if you're doing PSLF for 10 years, right? It's a 10 year commitment uh, and you're not locked into the program by any means. Like if you all ultimately decide you don't want to do it, you you don't have to. And it's not a consecutive 120 payment. So if you decide to go back to it, you can. Um, I think it's just a lot of it's a mental game with student loans is that you just have to be okay with being in debt and you have to make those smarter decisions that you don't normally have to think about if you're not owing somebody a small mortgage. Yeah. So ultimately what I, what I think is best, like you were saying, is just having and doing that research and having a game plan going into it. So you're not overwhelmed when the time comes and you get that first payment check. Yep. And I like that you mentioned about the financial, like, I, I hate that you say you're not a financial planner. Cause after that, I was kind of hoping you would help <laughs> me with my loans. Does. But I like that you mentioned financial planner. Cause like, that's probably one of the decisions I had no clue about until I just happened upon it. And I was like, who is this person? What's the catch? They're saying, you know, there's no charge to using us, but we help you with your money. And I was like, okay, <laughs> this is sketchy, uh-huh. but it was probably one of the best decisions I made. Cause I'm like, I didn't even understand these programs existed for, for, for non-student loan things and all these other ways for me to like make my money work better or make me use my money better. Yep. So do you have any additional advice for students when they're thinking about student loan repayment or just planning for the future in general? Yeah, I think one of the best things to do is truly evaluate what your goals are. Like, what are you looking to get into in terms of your professional career? Are you going into a private industry? You're going into community or going to nonprofit institution? And I think a lot of us just have so much anxiety about money in general because it's just always been something that we've not really had a lot of as undergrad and graduate students. Um, And what I realized that as soon as I kind of graduated, I really needed to start a budget and as well as a part of that budget, start sinking funds for bills that I knew I had to pay every year. So your licensing fees, et cetera. And once I really kind of took charge of my money and really saw where it was going, it felt a lot better and a lot more control of my financial situation, um, which I think is what we ultimately all want, even if we don't have all of the answers. So everyone's future is really going to be different, but you really just have to find out what works best for you. And residency is going to be one of those 
hard times of your life, but it's also going to be really rewarding. So you're going to figure out how to manage just your time, but in addition, your finances and balancing that with your kind of life outside of the hospital or clinic, as Sean would say. But I think one of the other things that nobody really talks about too, from a financial standpoint, especially as you're heading into graduation season as a fourth year, is that it's actually really expensive to get licenses to pharmacists. At the time that I graduated, I had matched to Tennessee, so our program in Tennessee. So I actually ended up getting licensed in both North Carolina and Tennessee, which means that not only did I have to pay for the Netflix, but I had to pay for two different MPJE exams as well as two different board of pharmacy fees. Overall, I think it came out to about $1,500 that I really just hadn't budgeted or been expected to pay. So if I was a fourth year student, really at this point, I'd definitely be budgeting for these things as well as these costs. And like we previously talked about here, you're going to have to move and have different costs associated with that as well. So I think it's just something for everybody to just be aware of because nobody told me. Yeah. And I'd like to add to that. You you had the forethought to say, I might be in these two states. Right. <laughs> so let me get, let me do that. I, uh, I did not have that forethought. Uh, I thought I actually was planning on waiting to the last moment to, you know, send the NAPLEX scores and then residency, uh, you know, destroyed my life. So I forgot about that deadline, but I reciprocated for between PGY and PGY two, and it cost close to a thousand dollars to reciprocate to a state, which was substantially higher than had I just done it ahead of time. So, I mean, it's hard to think about those things ahead of time. Like, where am I going to be next year? When you, you're just like glad you got a one year training experience, if you got, you know, one year, but it's if you can try to think ahead and, and make some of those plans, you'll you'll even save yourself money in the mm-hmm. future. You won't have to pay for reciprocation fees, which are substantial. All right. So now for everyone's favorite segment, uh, the postgraduate pharmacist trivia. So I'll ask the first question. Since I'm a product of the 80s, an 80s baby, which <laughs> which 80s movie was the highest grossing film of the decade? 80s movies, highest grossing film of the decade. Well, I was a 90s baby, so I'm going to check out on this one. (laughs) Born in 88, but my goodness, 80s movie. So it's probably still So, Sean, it was before you were born. I'll just say that. Was it? uh, Was it Die Hard? What? Not Die Hard. Was that an 80s movie? (laughs) I'm not exactly sure, but the the correct answer is actually E.T., the extraterrestrial. You know what? I was going to guess Star Wars. Not, now that I think about it, that probably would have been. So, Star Wars was close. I think it was like the next highest. It, it, E.T. actually surpassed Star Wars. And then E.T. was the highest grossing film until 1993 when Jurassic Park surpassed oh. it. See, I, I'm, I'm like Team Lion King. I would never have guessed. I'll take the Lion King for 200, Alex. <laughs> so long ago. <laughs> Well, okay, okay. So on the same topic of movies, uh, and and we don't we don't plan these ahead of time, so it's coincidental that these are both movie trivia. So on May twentieth, nineteen ninety five, the eighth annual Nickelodeon Kids Choice Awards was held at the Barker Hangar in Santa Monica, California, with believe it or not, host Whitney Houston, and uh, they had over twenty six million kids vote. So in the category of favorite movie actor. Was it, and you have choices here, was it Tim Allen as Scott Calvin in The Santa Claus? Was it Jim Carrey as Ace Ventura in Ace Ventura Pet Detective? Or Keanu Reeves as Jack Traven in Speed? I've never even heard of Speed. I would go with Ace Ventura. 
You've never Speed heard is a great of Speed. Movie. Get out of here. Get out of here. I'm never going to be invited back. I I like I like that there's multiple choice, so that narrows it down. <laughs> yeah, which one was voted the best or favorite? Favorite. I feel movie like actor. kids on the Kids Choice Awards are going to be like, let me talk to this crazy man, Ace Ventura. I'm actually going to go with uh with Tim Allen. It's uh Des is right. <sighs> it's Jim Carrey, Ace Ventura. You know, I'm surprised that Keanu, like Speed was an like that's an adult movie. Why why was that on the Kids Choice Awards? It I don't think that was a kids movie. No, Which is why I've never seen it. <laughs> wow. Well, you need to go watch it. It's good. It's a it's a it's a classic. The more you know. <laughs> the new tagline for the podcast: "The more you know." Mm-hmm. All right, so let's move on to our next question. So many times postgraduate training requires a big move. For me, that was five or six hours away. And oftentimes you're supporting yourself for the first time and having to pay pay the bills, if you will. So how should students prepare for that? And do you have any tips or advice? So I don't know how far you two had to go away, but I had to, I had to drive 600 miles from where I was in Tennessee to Pennsylvania to go to my training program. So I can comment a little bit about moving, moving to a new place. So for our listeners, this may be the first time you're leaving home. So it's okay to be nervous, scared, or even apprehensive. You know, you're not alone in this unless you prefer to live alone, which there's some of us out there that cannot live with roommates. But if unless you prefer to live alone, it might be beneficial to go ahead and reach out to your program like as soon as you can, because all of this happens really fast. Reach out to your program director, get a list of who the either current residents are, maybe going to PGY2s there or uh, upcoming residents and see if they're also looking for a place to live and you can potentially have them as roommates, especially uh, when they're in the program with you, that can help you from both a cost standpoint because you're able to split rent and you also have someone who understands what you're going through. So you can have someone to vent to if you need that. So check the rent agreement to make sure it allows you to uh, live through the entire residency too. So one of one, some of these rent agreements are only for 12 months. So students have to uh, like wait until the last minute before residency starts to get into their apartment or feel like that's the case. But if you look, a lot of these agreements and then the one we had, you know, as long as you were there for 12 months, you could ex- extend it out a month at a time. So that allows you to maybe move a little bit early. Like Des was talking about earlier with finances and all the things that happen as your student loans are weaning down, you know, you may not have the money to pay for a couple of weeks in an apartment before you start residency. Cause if, depending on if you're on a biweekly check or a monthly check, it may be a while until you get that first check and be able to cash that. So and when you're looking for a place, the last thing I'll say is, you know, don't don't try to get like the top of the line place that has the Olympic sized pool and the full gym and the car wash and the dog grooming center and all that stuff. I mean, that stuff's nice, but you, you don't even know how much free time you're going to have. And chances are you're not going to have a ton of free time. You're just going to come back and pass out in your bed. So don't don't necessarily pay a lot of extra money if you can avoid it. You know, you want to be in a safe place, but if you can avoid all that extra cost, do that because that will save you, uh, especially when it comes to your budget. Oh, yeah. And I, I totally agree with Sean. I moved from Durham, North Carolina uh, to Knoxville, which I think is it's probably like 350 miles or so. But I actually ended up just packing up my own apartment. I got a friend to drive my car and I drove the U-Haul myself because I was dead set on saving money. 
And so if you've never driven through the Smoky Mountains with a U-Haul through Asheville, it is terrifying. I didn't think I was going to make it to my first day of residency, but uh, <laughs> it's it's not a it's not a fun trip, I will say, in a 20-foot U-Haul or however big it was. Yeah, but Yeah, but that saved you a ton of money. A I mean, ton those, of those, money. Those those moving companies cost a fortune. Like they they charge a ridiculous amount of money for you to put your stuff on a truck and take it, you know. Oh yeah. Yeah, I definitely said I definitely was like, nope, not doing that. Um, but the finances, they ultimately did also become a part of like deciding where to apply to residency. So I did want to be a drivable distance from home. I'm not a homebody by any means. I love kind of visiting friends and going all over the place, but I really didn't want to have to fly home, which I think is a lot of uh, what a lot of people have to do if they end up going across the country. And so that wasn't really something that I really wanted to do. Uh, so I applied to a ton of local programs in North Carolina, which thankfully we have a ton, but I really just kind of applied to anywhere within the Southeast. So for North Carolina, where I'm based out of um, or where I was definitely at the time. I did anywhere really in South Carolina. I did Virginia. I did Tennessee, actually Knoxville being one of the furthest away from where I was living. And then ended up thankfully matching somewhere close by. Um, even for PGY2s as that process, if this is something that you're also considering, that became a big part of which PGY2 programs I applied to and interviewed at because I, again, I didn't want to have to spend you know, every time I got the opportunity to go home to spend a minimum of, you know, $500 or so for a round trip flight just to see my family for Christmas. And so I wanted to be able to drive it, even if it was like a longer drive, I think Durham to Knoxville is about six hours. I still wanted to be able to take advantage of that aspect of it. It's not impossible. I wouldn't say limit yourself only geographically. Obviously, you're gonna have to make some sacrifices for residencies, but definitely keep that into consideration. If you're a homebody and you want to be able to visit home, flying is one, you're not going to have a ton of time in residency to spend, you know, every other long weekend at home, but flying can be adding up expenses really quickly. And I'll second definitely what Sean said. Um, I definitely did not have the fanciest apartment. My cat ruined all my blinds. So I really looked like I was living in a homeless shelter <laughs> for quite a while. <laughs> every time you drove past, all my blinds were messed up and my lights were never on because <laughs> I was always sleeping when I got home. But I promise you, if especially most most residency programs now, I think you end up working like if it's not every other weekend, it's every third weekend, especially for PGY1s. So you're really just not going to have a ton of time to take advantage of a ton of the uh, so-and-so amenities um, that they're actually charging you extra for. So definitely get a cheap apartment. Obviously, you don't want to be unsafe, you know, especially if I was going to a place where I knew nobody and I had, not that I didn't have friends, but I didn't really have, you know, a sense of who people were at the time when I got there. So uh, you don't want to be unsafe, but definitely it's something that you you don't need a huge apartment. You don't need a ton of extra space. Not that many people are going to visit you. Let's not kid ourselves because you're going to have no weekends off. So making sure that you have enough for you. I brought my cat with me and he was a decent enough roommate, but he didn't pay too many bills, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. And I think one other thing that I would just reiterate, and I think Des brought it up earlier, but was about budgeting and I, the importance of a budget when you're actually you know, having a steady income for the first time for most people in their lives, just having a sense of where your money is going from month to month can really put you at ease and let you kind of realize what, you know, how much apartment you can afford and what the, those payments that you can afford to make each month. So that's a very simple advice, but it's it's really important, I think, for students to realize. Residents make 50 to 75% less than some of their classmates who graduate at the same time and enter the workforce. How do you recommend they handle or cope with that realization? This is really, uh, to me, it's, it's really all about perspective, to be honest. If you're going into residency for really short-term financial gains, you're really doing it wrong. 
you're definitely going to get frustrated because it's not a, a short-term gain, unfortunately. But what it really does mean is that you just have to budget, like we've said kind of throughout this whole podcast, is you really have to prioritize what you can do and live with and uh, use for the next one to two years of residency training. So your housing, your food, your utilities, and all those other necessities have to come first, right? Those are the things that you have to pay in order to kind of get through the day and really do your job well too. It's not just you want to get through residency, you want to do residency and do it really well. So I actually ended up just living like a pharmacy school student for my two years of residency. Uh, And I honestly didn't really miss much. You know, you're so busy, you're learning a whole bunch of things that you never even thought about through pharmacy school that you really just don't end up missing it. I didn't end up getting a new shiny car or fancy house, but I didn't miss it because I was so busy. You know, and then looking back at some of the decisions that my classmates made, and I love all of my classmates, so this is not a dig at them by any means. They end up listening to this podcast, but others of those who made that, um, you know, immediate after graduation decision, once they get their real paycheck to say, well, now I can afford all this and I can do all this. And ultimately they end up just paying a ton of money and being in the same sort of financial situation as me, where they don't have a lot of money, but their bills are more expensive. And so that mindset, I think, of just living like a student with no income really just kind of helped me set me up for, you know, financial success kind of down the road. But it's really not just about financial success. I know this is a podcast about our finances, but for professional passions and what we do every day, I think it's important that that you make sure that you love what you do and that you take in all the opportunities that residency is then going to afford you. And I see a lot of my friends now are making that jump from community and retail and trying to really get into the hospital pharmacy practice, not because it offers more money, but because the quality of life and other benefits are far exceeding what that the money that they've earned in the retail or community setting can really get them. We've mentioned the budget now a few times. So let's say as a resident, you might be making about $1,200 after taxes every two weeks or so. So how would you budget that out? Yeah, so I actually took Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University course during, or it was actually after residency, so I kind of wish it had happened before, but it's super helpful, and I definitely think it's something that residents or potential future residents need to take advantage of. I actually have a budgeting app that it's technically Dave Ramsey's app, but there's Mint, there's Every Dollar, there's several apps out there that you can use to help you kind of just see where your money's going. I think that's a lot of what we don't know is you know, we spend $5 at Starbucks here and we never really see it come, you know, through our budget, so to speak. And so we just kind of forget about it. And then after five times a week of coffee, you've spent $30. That's almost 1% of your, you know, total income on one week of coffee. So in terms of priorities, I always, when I budget, I budget out my home costs, which includes things like rent, mortgage, and utilities. And I try to keep those at about 25% of my income for the whole year, obviously. And so, when you have other things that come into play, like food and bills, which are you know obviously required to be paid, um, and then other purchases that you make, it's really just going to come down to kind of categorizing what you have. And so what I also would recommend is having, give yourself a little bit of spending money. So give yourself like $100 every month or you know every two weeks or so to say, this is what I'm going to use to buy things for me that I may or may not need, but it's something that I've wanted. And if you don't have anything that month, you can save it and kind of you know, save up for something else bigger in the long run. But both in my first year and second year, I only got paid once a month. So that was a huge switch for me. So if you don't know what your residency is going to pay you like, make sure you make sure you ask them because I started in what we started in June. No, we started in July, July 1st, and we aren't paid till the end of July. So you're basically are going a whole month without an income, even though you're working. And so I actually budget out all of that month 
with what I know my income is going to be. And I have different categories that I use and everybody's going to be different, but mine included pet stuff so that I can make sure my cat still got fed. I also have sinking funds. If you don't know what a sinking fund is, this is going to be where you save a little bit of money for those purchases that you know are going to come up every year. So for example, Every year I have to buy a year's worth of flea and tick medications for my animals. Your pharmacist license fees are going to come up every year. If you're board certified, that board certification fee comes up every year. Um, And then insurance costs you have to pay every year. So I created sinking funds kind of throughout residency to save like $5 here for this or $10 here for that. And I just kind of put it in a savings fund that I didn't touch. And so that there's not this big kind of payment that you have to pay at the end of the year with money that you don't actually have because you spent it all on coffee or whatever. Yeah, I use, you mentioned mint. I used mint too. I like how it is a stress-free one because it, to the, for the most part, can recognize where the purchases are coming from and automatically categorize them. So you get like a quick snapshot, which you can go in there and tag them yourself, but it tags everything, which makes it nice to be able to see. Yeah, I feel pretty old school with that. I actually use a, just an Excel sheet for my budget. So <laughs> I don't even use one of those fancy apps that you all use. I'm the same as you. I have to use an Excel spreadsheet now because it just doesn't like it confuses all those pharmacist fees and things like that as other stuff. And it, it's it's more of a hassle to t- re-tag it afterwards. But I like this question uh, because it, it you know brings back a mixture of emotion. This is it, As sad as this is, you're like, this is the most money I've ever made. But then at the same time, you're like, how can I afford to feed myself <laughs> this much money a month with all the other fees that I'm now paying? Um, as you look on Facebook and your friends are like, look, I got a BMW. And you're just like, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I remember, I remember the days of begging my RPD for a drug dinner <laughs> to be hosted by a drug rep <laughs> for the sole purpose of I wanted a fancy dinner that I didn't have to pay for. <laughs> There you go. Yeah, I I just wanted, I mean, I agree with everything you said, Des. I just want to add the, um, I usually combine my savings and my, you called it, say it again, what would you call uh, that? Sinking funds. Sinking fund. Sinking. I usually put it together. Sinking. Sinking fund. Uh, I usually combine that with savings just, just in just like, no, it's there. But I do, I do suggest like, I know it's hard, but still saving probably like $200 a month if you can. Because over the course of the year, that's going to pay for all the potential transfer fees and moving fees and things like that. And it'll pay for if you have, um, especially if this is the last training experience you have, you might not go straight into the workforce. You might not want to go straight into the workforce. You might want to take some time off from residency or fellowship or whatever you're doing. And so having some money there to get you to you know, the next position that you're in without building up too much uh, credit card debt. It is is beneficial. But if you can't, it's not, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world. One thing I would mention, I think it's important just to do due diligence and do your own research into this topic. I know we've covered a lot of things that uh, may seem foreign to you. So I think the more well-versed you you appear in it, the better off you'll, you'll feel going into your residency here and thereafter. Look into different resources out there. Des mentioned Dave Ramsey earlier. There's other resources specific to pharmacy. There's uh, your financial pharmacist and and things like that. So I would I would just encourage our listeners to look into those um, resources as well. In our final moments, Des, what what is one key takeaway concerning finances for those seeking postgraduate training? So I always anybody who asks me about money, I always tell them, remember this is only for a year or two, right? So it's not the end of the world. Your whole future is ahead of you. And so 
all you really want to do for at least these short term is to have a plan. There's so many resources. You have past residents, you have faculty members who have gone before you, done this already, and they all made it out okay. So I would I would recommend definitely reaching out to them, set yourself up for success, be responsible, be a little bit conservative in terms of what you go out and do after you get that first real paycheck. But um, we've all done it before and we you guys are all be able to do it going forward. Well, Des, it was a pleasure having you as a guest on the Postgraduate Pharmacist today. The honor was all mine. Thanks, guys, for having me. If you want to continue to hear up-to-date topics from us and our guests, please like and subscribe to our channel. You can listen to us on all major podcasting apps. And remember to check out RxPalette on Instagram for handcrafted, focused reference guides. 